1948, the people in the British colony of Newfoundland faced a choice. They could become an independent dominion within the British Empire, or they could vote to join Canada in Confederation. The anti-Confederates are not going to get away with it. But St. John's was an anti-Confederate headquarters. Watch in particular the attractive bait which will be held out to lure our country into the Canadian mousetrap. Listen to the Stories Behind the History podcast for our special series, How Did Newfoundland Join Canada? Available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is The Secret Life of Canada, a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. Go. Ooh. Yep. Try. Okay. It. Okay. Mmm. Yeah. It's good, right? Yeah, it's spicy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really get the ginger. I mean, it's gingery. Yeah. Yeah. So this is sorrel. It's made from the sorrel plant, which I think it's actually native to West Africa, but now it grows all over the Caribbean, and it's essentially hibiscus. Uh, the drink itself has some ginger. It's steeped. Has orange and a bunch of other spices. You can also add rum, which we haven't done here. That's a bit early. You would actually usually have it on Christmas or New Year's. But with the subject matter we're covering today, I wanted to do it because it's a special occasion. So let's do this. Cheers. Oh, we should start every episode like this. This I know, but it means all of our episodes would be about how Jamaica, Barbados, and the Bahamas almost became provinces in Canada. What? Today we're going to look at, one... When people in the Caribbean started coming to Canada, I wanted to learn this myself. It's a lot earlier than you might think. Two, why places like Jamaica and Barbados almost became provinces here, and then why they didn't, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. Three, how Winnipeg became a hotbed of black activism, and this was all because of men who worked on the railroad. And then four, how all of these stories tie into the history of Canada's labor movement. Okay, and I and I know that your family is from the Caribbean. That's right. Yes, yes. my right? family is Bajan. From Barbados. That's right, yes. yes. A yes. lot of people, I know it's, you I don't can know say wh- Barbadian or you can say Bajan. I know before you ask, because first of all, the resemblance is scary. I am not related to Rihanna. Yeah, it's that big joint <laughs> hanging out of your mouth. <laughs> How dare you? Um, I am working on some family history to find out how we are related, but I haven't found that link yet. When I do, we'll do a whole history episode on that. Can we do it in in Barbados, please? Sure. CBC, if you're listening. Yeah. (laughs) CBC, I hope you're listening. (laughs) Um, But listen, I have to confess, I really tried hard when I started to research this episode around the Caribbean to not make it just about Barbados because there's so many places in the Caribbean and yes that's part of my history but I didn't want to you know make it solely about the place that I love and that everyone should go to and visit. I honestly say like the the differences between these places I don't I yeah. don't know anything. A lot of people don't they can't hear the difference in the accent yeah. which is stunning to me when you hear a Haitian person talk it's like a, a very distinct almost French accent well, I mean they do speak French there Yeah. A, as opposed to you know a person from St. Kitts or a person from Martinique it's all different and I think if you're from there obviously or you grew up um, you know like I did with parents from the Caribbean you can hear here, you know, where everyone's from. But it's interesting to me, a lot of my um, friends here that 
are not of Caribbean heritage, they they can't tell. There are so many places that make up the Caribbean. I mean, there are 13 states, 17 dependent territories, which also means there's so many people, like we're saying, from many of those places. And, you know, for most part in Canada, we are very lumped together. People not from the Caribbean always assume that if you're from there or have family from there, you're from Jamaica. It's a great place, but obviously there's so many other places. And I know there are many people from the Caribbean that get frustrated if they are, you know, from uh, Guyana and someone says, oh, are you Jamaican? You know, they're like, no, I'm not. Right. So there's a lot of distinction. The Caribbean is huge. It's more than 1.06 million square miles and has around 700 islands in it. Not all of those are inhabited of course some are empty except for the odd time a season of survivor gets filmed on one of them but needless to say there are a lot of people who live all over the caribbean most people speak english spanish french or dutch or languages like creole or patois you'll also hear people call themselves west indian or say they are from the west indies and essentially if i have to boil down why everyone is speaking those languages and using the term west indian it's because of a long history of of colonialism from a bunch of different sources that's yeah places like the uk france spain the netherlands they have one big terrible thing in common slavery. This is how most of the wealth and land was acquired in the Caribbean. The indigenous people of the Caribbean were colonized, killed, and their lives were transformed from this. Peoples like the Garifuna of St. Vincent and the Arawak people of Guyana and Suriname. Right, and the Arawaks were the first indigenous people to have the unfortunate luck of running into Christopher Columbus. Boo. Boo, Christopher Columbus. I mean, boo boo so hard. I'm not even saying boo. That's how disgusted I am with him. (laughs) Yes, boo so hard. Why is he a thing? Christopher Columbus was encountering the Arawaks, and what was happening was these boats, these Spanish boats, would land in the Caribbean, and they would read something called the Spanish Requirement of 1513. Which I've also read that the Arawak and, you know, a lot of indigenous people in the Caribbean were quite, you know, they were like, hi, who are you? You know, they they were not able to kind of s- foresee what was coming next. So they were quite open yeah. to these yeah. men arriving on their shores. To so they get men. read this decree. Yeah, they get read this decree in Spanish, obviously, mm-hmm. which no one, you know, which the Arawaks and other mm-hmm. indigenous people don't understand. And this decree basically says you all have to be servants to the Spanish crown now. We are claiming this land for the Spanish crown. Uh, and if you disagree with us, you will become our slaves. Mm-hmm. Now go find us some gold. Mm-hmm. And so if these indigenous people, the Arawaks included, didn't come back with gold, they would lose fingers. Yeah. Their noses were cut off. They were maimed. And this so, is really hard information that we're giving out here. Yeah. But it was very violent. It was a very violent time. Yeah. And I mean, this this starts the, you know, the economy for the quote unquote new world, right? This is the basis and the foundation of America and North America in a lot of ways. Listen, a lot of the uber, uber rich in in these countries that we're talking about, if you trace it back, this is how they acquired their wealth, right? Like it's all linked. So, I mean, not only were 
We then seeing the enslavement of the indigenous people of the Caribbean. Then African slaves were brought over to the Caribbean in huge numbers. There were also indentured servants from China, Indonesia, and India. An indentured servant is a person who was bound by a sign or forced contract to work for a particular time. Sometimes that was, you know forever sometimes it was shorter so there were there are a lot of you know at this time all of these different influences coming into the caribbean like it was it was very um for better or worse multicultural in a way now i don't want to go down a rabbit hole here trying to describe the entire history of the caribbean but we are a history podcast (laughs) so i will say that when the europeans landed they wanted to find a way really to make more money and get more power. That was Mm -hmm. the really, the goal. And the end product of that was sugar. So sugarcane became the cash crop that fortified the upper ranks of the British, French, Spanish, and Dutch aristocracy and made these colonies valuable. The irony of all of it is that while it made some people rich, the money then and even now never stays with the people living in the Caribbean, the workers that work the cane. You know, yeah. it often gets taken out. According to the World Bank, around 80% of the money that tourism makes in Jamaica does not stay on the island. It instead goes into all of the resorts and the people who own the resorts and the people who own those people who own the resorts, you know, it doesn't Mm. stay on the island. And that's not distinct to Jamaica. That's happening all over the Caribbean. Basically what I'm saying is next time you go on vacation to the Caribbean, tip everyone in cash, huge amounts, and go to local places and generally just go to Barbados, obviously. And this is a good time time to remind people of this because everyone, including myself, is looking at vacations. looking at vacation (laughs) spots, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that tie into colonialism, especially that bond between the United Kingdom and the West Indies, is also why there's a historical bond between the Caribbean and Canada. And so we're going to look at that today and service and labor. So when did people from the Caribbean start coming to Canada and why did they come? Well, the earliest record of West Indians coming to Canada was in 1796. This surprised me because based on everything I knew and everything I knew was based on nothing because I never checked it out. The majority of West Indians came over in maybe the 1970s or the 80s. But the first West Indians to arrive in Canada were Jamaican Maroons. Maroons were enslaved people that escaped and ran into the forest and made lives there. They Mm. joined the Black Loyalists and African Canadians in Nova Scotia. That's so cool. I did not know any of that. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's before Canada was even Canada. That's right. For more on that, you can check out our Birchtown episode in season one that explores slavery in Canada. Mm-hmm. We'll add a link to the episode uh, on our website. So after that, in the early 1900s, a small number of Jamaicans and Bajans would come over to work the mines in Cape Breton and Sydney. I just want to say again that this was a major discovery to me, and I think it will be for Canadians who are descended from uh, people from the Caribbean or are from the Caribbean living in Canada, because With many black people living here, there's a perception that, A, you're not from here, like you just aren't, and B, you must have just got here. Right. And one of the biggest reasons more people started arriving was for jobs, and that meant working the railroad. The railroad, in fact, would be, for better or for worse, one of the largest employers of black men. 
these men would be more commonly known as sleeping car porters. And what what's a sleeping car porter? Okay, I had to figure this out too. So at one time in history, for a long time, train was the way to travel. If you're going cross country, you would sleep and eat for several days on the train. I mean, they were much nicer than the trains that we are currently traveling in now. Porters were hired to take care of passengers' every needs. They would carry bags, change bed sheets, clean shoes, wash clothes. I mean, they did everything. This was a job held almost exclusively by black men because they had no other job opportunities at the time. The hours were long and the pay was low. Here is a clip of two former porters, Judge Stanley Grizzle and Ray Lewis from the NFB film The Black Experience in Canada, detailing what their work was like as a porter. The porter on the railroad was the bottom of the barrel. Even the news agent received more respect. You were their servant. You made the bed. You cleaned the toilets. You cleaned the spittoon. That's a word you don't hear now, cuspidor or spittoon. And in those days, most men spit. I cleaned them. I shined the shoes. I cleaned messy beds. But uh, this is all I could get. The railway, can we just can we just talk yeah. about the, the railway it's, is super messed it's up. It's messed up. What yeah. a messed up mm-hmm. history. Like mm-hmm. you think about the railroad and its history in this country and you think about how it was built to help unify the country and that was the only way confederation was ever going to happen was if this railway was created. Mm-hmm. And so they bring in all these Chinese guys to build the thing. They mm-hmm. kick indigenous people off the mm-hmm. land, get out of the way, and then they put black people inside mm-hmm. to serve the white people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I didn't know... That black people had any connection really historically to the railroad. Like I did not. I will confess until when I started this episode, I thought it was going to be about something else about the Caribbean. And I was like, who are these guys that I didn't know about? And this story is so interesting because all of these men and a lot of the women in their lives doing this job led them to become activists. And that activism allowed for more people from the Caribbean to come to Canada. Many of us who are from the Caribbean or have parents from the Caribbean who came here owe a lot to the sleeping car porters. I mean, I am sitting here next to you. Why? Sleeping car porters. Really? Okay. I, I, how? Okay. <laughs> Tell me more. Okay. So I talked to Professor Sage Mathieu, author of North of the Color Line, Migration and Black Resistance in Canada. I asked her if she could tell me more about who they were and why they're such an important piece of the Caribbean immigration story. What surprised me in this interview was the reason so many West Indians got here was because the railway started running out of African Americans to hire for these jobs and Black Canadians. But I'll just let her tell you more. Hi, I'm Sage Metzger. I'm an associate professor of history at the University of Minnesota. I think we have to remember that the turn of the 20th century was really the heyday of railway travel. And the Pullman Company had, since the mid-19th century, really cornered the market on this opulent way of traveling where I suppose we could imagine it like the Titanic, but on rails, right? Beautiful service, great food. And with that came the idea that you had to have these black men in a position of service and a position of 
submission in many respects uh, for these wealthy white uh, railway passengers. And the, we can't forget that the president of the Canadian Pacific Railway was an American at this time who knew the industry inside out, and he wanted to rival his American competitors and did so by bringing in the same kinds of tropes. Right, So not only does CP want black men, but it wants a very particular kind of black man, one ideally with a southern accent, who is a little bit urbane, but not too much, not so much that he has political ideas or worse, ideas about unions, uh, and you know, one who can play the part. And in order to get that kind of man, CP sends out its agents to various parts of the American South, and tries to handpick as many porters as they can who are also the right kind of brown, not too pale, not too dark, uh, who are what we would today call university age, and ideally, you know, but not necessarily with some experience working the rails. So we begin by having uh, black Canadians and to a lesser extent uh, African Americans working on the rails, uh, the Canadian companies are, are quite successful at encouraging African Americans to come in Canada. It's not that far. It's not inconvenient. We also speak English. And so why not try that out for a six-month contract, especially if it's a correction to unemployment? But the Canadian Porter Service grows so quickly that it can't keep fueling the program entirely with black Canadians. So... As the Canadian Pacific Railway and its steamship branch extend into the Caribbean in the first decade of the 20th century, then the company realizes that it has this entire pool of workers that they can start to encourage, you know, as future sleeping car porters. So we get West Indian porters as early as the 1910s, maybe even a little earlier than that, coming on CP steamships to work in Canada for the CP rail. CP also gets a lot of African-American workers from Chicago, a huge railway hub, right, to a lesser extent from Detroit, a little bit from Minneapolis, somewhat from New York. And again, the sort of ease of travel, you could work on the Canadian rails, but go back home to New York or Chicago. These makes the jobs appealing. Uh, so what we have to remember is that in as much as the Canadian Railroad is a powerful icon for how we imagine the birth of Canada, it is as important in terms of creating and shaping early black life in Canada. So it is the railroad that brings people, black people to Canada. It is the railroad that is the chief employer of black people in Canada. Um, employment patterns on the railroad determine where black people will live in Canadian cities. So you couldn't shake a stick at a black person in, you know, prior to World War II without hitting some porters in the room. I mean, that's how important that employer and then the auxiliary culture around that kind of work becomes for black Canadian life. While we have the image of a porter as someone who is has a broad smile, is very welcoming when you arrive on the rails, tends to your every need, the actual job of sleeping car portering was very difficult. The men had to come to the railway station several hours before the trains were ready to depart in order to equip them, in order to make sure that they were clean. 
in order to uh, make sure that all of the kits that they would need to shine shoes and repair clothing were all in the right place. Uh, the porters then had to cater to every single whim of a passenger. They had to be able to answer questions about what people were seeing outside of the window, had to quickly make up beds, convert the seats into berths, um, and then convert them right back into seats if that's what people wanted. Uh, many of the porters I spoke with remembered fondly taking care of young children who were traveling across the country by themselves. Their parents entrusted them to sleeping car porters. Uh, one of the things that I heard most often from retired sleeping car porters is that an essentially difficult part of the job was also not knowing how they would be accused and fearing for their personal safety and their jobs. So some porters reported that Drunk passengers sometimes threatened to throw them off the train, uh, this in particular when running on trips to Churchill, so the added fear of being in polar bear country and ice-cold terrain uh, was something that more porters than I ever expected told me about. Um, porters were nervous about uh, inadvertent contact, especially with white women. And if, you know, one can imagine being on a train, it moves around, it jerks around, you can see how someone lose their balance and, and then be accused of having fondled someone. So, you know, the work was physically challenging. The porters were not allowed to sleep on sometimes, you know, 18, 20-hour runs. But in addition to that, there was a psychological or emotional component that the porters told me, you know, was in some respects as hard as the job itself. Has the railway ever apologized to any of that behavior? Like yeah, that's, that's a good question. I don't know. Like I just I feel like that's such a big part of that's such a big part of again the country's history. This railway, and and the only reason that those that that was possible is because mm -hmm. of these these men. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, your job would come with so much potential of violence simply because you were black yeah um i can't imagine the anxiety and the fear and the the kind of face that you would have to put on and kind of the persona that you would have to wear to kind of navigate that every day and here's the other thing canada was really segregated i mean not by law like the u.s but in everyday practice I sat down and talked to Christopher Stuart Taylor, a historian and author of Flying Fish in the Great White North, The Autonomous Migration of Black Barbadians. Because of legalized segregation in the U.S., what we know as Jim Crow, mm -hmm. you had separate schools. So we're looking at historically black colleges and universities. We're looking at separate school systems. By being in these separate school systems, black people could then become a black doctor or a black lawyer. On the flip side, in Canada, we didn't have that. We had de facto segregation. And if you look at, say, for example, in the school system, there's something in 1850 called the Common Schools Act, where you could legally, because of this act, create a school based on race. And in theory, it was, well, okay, black people, you can have your own school. White people, you can have your own school. Great, fantastic. But we all know in reality what happened was 
white people would have schools and black people would have no funds to go to school whatsoever. Right. So then we had this de facto segregation in this country. In the U.S., you knew where you stood. <laughs> you knew you couldn't go here. Law defines that. Mm-hmm. But in Canada, you're always in, and we talk about anti-black racism today, we're always in this weird space that the law says it's okay for me to be black and I'm going to say I I identify as a gender heterosexual black male. Mm -hmm. It's okay for you to walk down the street. But as we all know, particularly in news stories that are always popping up left, right, and center, it's quite dangerous for someone who looks like myself, presents as myself walking down the street and so we're in this this weird space that historically canada has never really said to the extent of the u.s that it's not as bad but the fact that we don't talk about it doesn't make it worse so you see the tie from then to today that a lot has changed but things haven't really changed, you know? Mm -hmm. And early immigrants who came to work in places like the railway faced a lot of that racism, the fear, the paranoia from passengers. Porters were also called George as a blanket way to remove their identities. And we've seen this story a lot in the history that we have looked at so far in the podcast. Canada wanted their labor, but not them. In fact, the Canadian government went to great lengths to dissuade and -and out-and-out ban Black West Indians from staying in Canada. By 1911, Black people were, for all intents and purposes, actively discouraged from coming to the country. Okay, but wait. So the Canadian government started putting Mm -hmm. policies in place. Yeah. But then how did the porters keep arriving and getting jobs then? This I don't... Is, okay, great. So CP Rail was powerful, really powerful, in mm-hmm. fact. And they essentially circumvented the rules and were able to bring in hundreds of people to work as porters year after year because they did so by hiring them on short-term contracts. Okay, so it was like work for us, but then go back to where you came from. Oh, exactly. And one of the reasons that African-Americans and African-Canadians and West Indians were used on the railroad is because they were not unionized and could not unionize in a lot of circumstances. Most of them were not landed immigrants or citizens. They were essentially powerless. And this brings us to why we don't have the province of the Bahamas or Mm. the province of Barbados or Jamaica. So I asked Professor Mathieu to tell me why with all of this needing black labor and not wanting anyone to stay, Canada was considering having provinces in the Caribbean. And I mean, a lot of what she says blew my mind. And it also made me realize all of the things that you see in the Caribbean that you might not think about that are really distinctly Canadian. I mean, in Barbados, I've never had a problem going there and going to the bank because the bank is the Bank of Nova Scotia or Royal Bank. Huh. That you is know, so interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there, there has been this very deep bond and tie that, you know, you don't question and really think about. You're just like, oh, this is convenient. Right. Um, and it's convenient for people from there who come here, right? Right. Like, it makes it convenient for both of us. But why Why has that been put in place? Well, she's going to tell us. On the one hand, Canada gets an introduction to the possibilities in the Caribbean through 
companies like the Canadian Pacific Railway and Steamship, right? So we, Royal Bank of Canada goes into the Caribbean and it starts setting up uh, a banking network around the 1910s, 1920s. And so as Canadian uh, corporations and entrepreneurs turn a gleaming eye towards the Caribbean, initially for its labor, but later for its greater possibilities, what we get is actually a clash of ideas between those Canadians who want to have more of an imperial presence in the Caribbean and by World War One, even make the case to London that as the white dominion in the Americas, Canadians are the best suited to be the overseers and protectors of the Caribbean and that in having that responsibility, they would also be playing a particularly important role in maintaining white supremacy in the Caribbean. So what we don't realize is the extent to which Canada came pretty close to having a Caribbean island as a new province uh, between World War One and World War Two, And the island of choice for Canadians for some time was Jamaica. Uh, then there was a bounce over to, well, what about Bermuda? And, of course, England would have none of it, as both of those islands were lucrative, important markets, um, in addition to being sort of feathers in the British crown, right? right. Um, so, But nonetheless, Canadians did not abandon this movement to, to have a Caribbean island of its own until uh, well after World War II. And what we don't realize is that we got Newfoundland instead of Jamaica as a concession from England. Amazing, amazing. I mean, it's it's, yeah. it's so fascinating, and I was so surprised at how long the conversation about possibly doing this went on. Oh, yeah. That it was... There was a professional magazine developed to sort of promote the idea of a Caribbean island. There's much... We see radical changes in uh, the kinds of advertising in Canadian newspapers and magazines. So we're promoting tropical fruit. We're making the case for going to the Caribbean for holidays. All of this to sell Canadians on the idea that, you know, having a, Canadian, uh, a Caribbean island, just as the U.S. had Puerto Rico, for example, that this would be good for a modern Canada. The problem is the black folks that are in the Caribbean and to what extent their incorporation would rattle Canadian democracy. And in effect, we decide that it would be too frightening an enterprise, right? How do we disenfranchise the black Caribbeans without, well, taking one step closer to being a whole lot like Americans who disenfranchise African Americans? Those Canadians who were for amalgamation with the Caribbean made the argument that as a modern nation, Canada needed to quote, its own deep south. And so imagine the the weight of that language, right? We needed a, a hot space where the, the labor is mostly black and, and toiling in a state of fear. So that took a turn. <laughs> okay, so what she's saying is that Canada wanted the islands in the Caribbean as a quick dual citizenship way for, for vacations and holidays, mm-hmm. uh, trade and labor, but yeah. it didn't really want to do that because white Canada was afraid of black people they realized oh wait if we do that then black people will come here <laughs> and <laughs> yeah extremely I mean <laughs> one-sided relationship <laughs> yeah it's interesting because 
one of the reasons floated out there as to why it would be great to have a Caribbean island is so, in a way, black people wouldn't leave. Like, one side was like, oh, they'll come here. And the other side was like, no, they won't leave. Like, if we just go there, they'll just stay there and they'll, you know, do our bidding. A big reason that many migrants were given as to why they couldn't come to Canada was because they couldn't handle the cold. In fact, I would like you, Phelan, to read from an approved order by the cabinet of Prime Minister Sir Wilfrid Laurier, our seventh prime minister, on August 12, 1911. For a period of one year from and after the date hereof, the landing in Canada shall be, and the same in prohibited of any immigrants belonging to the Negro race, which race is deemed unsuitable to the climate and requirements of Canada. <laughs> Sir Wilfrid Laurier, y'all, our seventh I know, prime I'm minister. Like, I don't know what he sounded like. <laughs> It was great. I think it sounded just like him. Well, obviously, he didn't write that. But yeah. So (laughs) while all of this is going on, there are other people trying to come over and work, and they are getting thrown in jail after their short-term work visas expired with no recourse to fight it because Canada made it clear, we don't want you here. But then everything changed. And this all happened because in the 60s, liberal governments, the liberal governments of Lester B. Peterson and Pierre Elliott Trudeau, they they wanted to change immigration in Canada. So they did this by uh, putting together important legislation like the 1966 White Paper on Immigration. It really changed immigration rules in Canada. And it basically was the beginning of the Declaration of Canadian multiculturalism. Right. And so that just kind of like, it opened the doors a little more? Hugely so. Yeah. Right. I I think hugely so. I mean, it was still, let me just say, like, it's still difficult to come here, but it Mm -hmm. was made easier by that legislation for sure. Right. And And Trudeau, I mean, Trudeau Sr., for a lot of older people from the Caribbean, he's seen as like a rock star. Like he was a rock star in his day. Strangely, if you watch videos on him, it's like screaming girls running after his car. But yeah, so that the white paper was a big, big deal uh, in terms of a lot people from all over the world coming over. And it's so interesting because when I hear the white paper, I think of something completely different because there was this white paper that was also pushed by uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau uh, and Jean Chrétien in the 60s, the late 60s. And so uh, what that white paper wanted to do was terminate the Indian Act, uh, dissolve all treaties and make all indigenous people in Canada Canadians. So that would Whoa. that would also dissolve a lot of our inherent rights as, you know, as, as as the original inhabitants of this land. Why these papers all got to be white? Why these papers all got to be white? Indeed, Leah. <laughs> <laughs> so the paper was ultimately the white paper that I'm talking about was well ultimately withdrawn in 1970 because the backlash against it was so intense. Jean Chrétien at the time is quoted as saying, "We'll keep them in the ghetto." as long as they want. In 1948, the people in the British colony of Newfoundland faced a choice. They could become an independent dominion within the British Empire, or they could vote to join Canada in Confederation. The anti-Confederates are not going to get away with it. But St. John's was an anti-Confederate headquarters. Watch in particular the attractive bait which will be held out to lure our country into the Canadian mousetrap. Listen to the Stories Behind the History podcast for our special series, How Did Newfoundland Join Canada? 
Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so at the beginning of the episode, you mentioned that these black porters that we've been speaking about, they uh, became activists in Mm -hmm. Winnipeg. How did that all happen? Well, yeah, this is fascinating because it was really the people from the Caribbean that actually ended up changing the immigration system. And that brings me to a man named John Arthur Robinson. He would start the order of the sleeping car porters. Here's Dr. Mathieu again as she explains how the porters organized and how the women of the community became so central to the fight. At the core, Robinson is a union man. We have to remember that he's in Winnipeg, a city steeped in union Uh, thinking and union work, it is no mistake that it is the site of the greatest union strike in Canada in 1919. And Robinson walks past these people every day to and from work, hears them on the rails, and he has his own vision of protecting but also uniting black workers. So his union model is a national one from the beginning. And I thought that that was really important because Canadian identity as a whole, is discussed regionally, right? We're, we're, we're from Central Canada or Western Canada or the Maritime. When, in effect, black life at the beginning of the 20th century certainly fell within those parameters as well. But there was nonetheless an effort to bridge black life nationally. And for me, the sleeping car porters and their actual physical work on the rails did much of that unification. And so Robinson is trying to convince black folks that, look, we're getting a raw deal. We're working on the exact same trains, going to the exact same locations, but these white workers get paid vacations and the, you know, concept of having uh, workman's comp, to use today's language, and we do not. We have no protections uh, with respect to the dangers that we face at work, um, unemployment, etc. And if we form a union, we have a place to start. And so what I love about the order of sleeping car porters is that this small cluster of men cooked up an idea that caught on across the country. So porters in the Maritimes, porters in Montreal, porters in Toronto, porters in Calgary, in Edmonton, in Vancouver, all signed on to the order of sleeping car porters. And in so doing, were able to stand up to the biggest corporation in Canada, the Canadian Pacific Railway, and say, not no, not no way, not no how, not one more minute will be, we be exploited. And that they succeeded where other uh, unions had failed is for me quite exceptional, the story. The order worked for two different reasons in my mind. Like two really delicious tricks were happening in plain sight. First, um, you know, the very invisibility that came with being a porter, like they're just the people who carry our bags and shine our shoes. Nobody pays attention to that until they're a nuisance, meant that porters could sort of do all this work right beneath the CPR's nose. They could appear to just be shining shoes, but in effect were trading ideas about when, you know, what they should do, when the next meetings would occur. Um, these guys were also masons. And so the importance of a culture of secrecy was at the heart of their unionization. So sometimes they held their meetings at their Masonic lodges and under the guise of these Masonic uh, events, but they were nonetheless planning. The other thing that porters did 
and it was brilliant, is to have their wives, sisters, mothers, and other loved ones do the work for them. So in other words, the men would tell the women in their lives, here's what we're going to negotiate, here's what we want. And while they were away on the rails and could not be accused of having had any sort of union talk, communist union talk, in effect, their wives were whole teas doing the kinds of things that women were expected to do, birthday parties and piano recitals. And it is in those moments that the women would all get together and say, look, tell your husband that my husband says the next march is happening this day. Unlike in the United States, black women in Canada could not be porters. So in the United States, they had women working on the rails in the same capacity, but in addition to that, they also had to serve as hairstylists and makeup artists and could be fired instantly if, you know, again, with this rocking train, they accidentally snipped someone's hair or, you know, ruined their makeup. The fact that in Canada women could not porter meant that the most lucrative job available to black people was completely unavailable to black women, right? That they couldn't turn to that as a way of feeding their families, whether they were single parents or in two-parent households who both needed to work. This is a problem. Um, but nonetheless, black women become instrumental in capturing, recording, publishing the life of the, the railway life of black people in Canada. They are the journalists. These women are the ones who are writing into the Chicago Defender and the New York Age and the Pittsburgh Courier, the big African-American newspapers, who by the late teens and certainly the early 20s, dedicate entire pages to black life in Canada. So a fantastic source for people interested in black Canadian history to sort of turn to and take a close look at. It is these women who are writing about black children born in Canada, black children who are winning scholarships to study whether it's in Canada, in Europe, or the United States, who are recording the, the deaths of loved ones in the black communities. So without these sleeping car porters, wives and daughters and sisters and mothers, we would have lost that black voice. So these women were mm-hmm. the keepers of the knowledge in, in a way, right? Mm-hmm. And they could uh, they could sort of get the word out. Yeah, they told the story. And I mean, they were really central to organizing and, you know, strength in numbers, right? This was a community-led initiative. And there was a man by the name of Donald Moore who was really part of the sleeping car porters in the early days. He saw this organizing and it led him to think he could change government policy on West Indian immigration. And where was he from originally? Okay, well, he was from Barbados. But in my defense, I just go where the history takes me and I can't help it if Bajans have significantly contributed to the history of the world as we know it. Hey, I, I feel you. Thank I you. like shout out Haudenosaunee every time it comes <laughs> All the up. Time. So don't worry about it. <laughs> Our show should just be called Six Nations and Other Stuff. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. <laughs> anyway, back to Donald Moore. So Donald Moore was from Barbados. He immigrated to the United States and then he eventually came to Montreal. He got here in the early 1900s and then he got work as a sleeping car porter. After that, he went into Dalhousie University to become a dentist. He did that in 1918. He got sick, couldn't basically finish school, and then he purchased a dry cleaning business. And this business became the meeting place for immigrants from the Caribbean. It was the home base also for the Negro 
Citizenship Association. And so he was in Toronto at this point. Yes, it was in Toronto. When the Negro Citizenship Association, the NCA, was founded, the motto became dedicated to the promotion of a better Canadian citizen. The association wanted to challenge the government who were denying Black West Indians entry into Canada and to stop the government from jailing migrants who were trying to stay here. Yeah. By 1954, Donald Moore led the Negro Citizenship Association to Ottawa. They were joined by labor unions and community, and they presented a brief on immigration to Canada's Minister of Citizenship and Immigration, Walter E. Harris. This brief highlighted Canada's discriminatory immigration laws against people from the Caribbean and described the impact. You know, Donald Moore worked with a lot of these people. He saw people being jailed or, you know, being shut out of Canada's immigration system, even though they had been working here for years. One of those delegates remembers Donald Moore's presentation to the minister. In his opening remarks, which were profound, Don told the minister that PC 2856, which enlarged the pool of admissible classes of European immigrants while shutting out blacks from the British Commonwealth, was discriminatory and dangerous. He also reminded him that Negroes fought in the War of 1812 and that William Hall was the first Negro to receive the Victoria Cross in October 1859 after valiantly defending a British garrison in India. So it worked in a way. It led to change in the Canadian immigration laws and opened the door for West Indian nurses and domestics to find employment in Canada. By 1955, Moore's work with the governments of Jamaica, Barbados, and Canada enabled domestics to gain permanent residency after one year of work, which they were never able to achieve before. And that open door came because of his and his association's activism. And that stemmed from the activism of the sleeping car porters. For a little more on domestic workers, here's Christopher Stort Taylor again. And in 1955, they had something called the domestic scheme. And with this domestic scheme, the primary job that people could come, and it was women in particular, was to be domestics. And for folks who may not be familiar with the term domestic, we hear about the nannies or living caregivers that we we use that term right now. So that was the primary job. And one of the things that is really important in a story and a particularly individual in this country is Jean Augustine. Jean Augustine was from Grenada. Again, another Caribbean island, British West Indian island. And she came up here highly educated. But because of anti-black racism in this country, we're looking at 1950s, early 1960s, they said, you know, your qualities, you're, they're not welcome here. Mm-hmm. And the only way that you can come here is to fit into this domestic scheme, is to come here for a period of indentured labor. No matter if you're a doctor, lawyer, teacher, university educated, doesn't matter. That's the only avenue for you to come into this country. And you saw it particularly for men. We call them, well, we say the term farm workers. It's really seasonal agriculture workers. You'd come to work, and we see this to this day, 2019. Still going on, yeah. You drive down Niagara, you drive down on the 401 past London, you still see it. This is still happening to this day. And this is something that's been going on for decades in this country.
So things shifted and obviously changed in terms of immigration, but it sounds like in some respects it hasn't. Yeah, you're right. There's still a very robust program for migrant workers from the Caribbean. And while it provides some with a way to get here and to stay here, many still can't. Large groups of West Indians pick our grapes and our tomatoes and our produce, some for decades without any chance at citizenship. And in a way, it all comes back to labor, Mm -hmm. cheap, expendable labor. In 2017, CBC asked Gabriel Aldua, a temporary foreign worker from St. Lucia, to share how his idea of Canada has changed since coming here for work. I made a list of things that stand between my high expectations of Canada and reality for me here. I call it the 20 dark sides of Canada. For one, I face working conditions I thought only existed in history. I never once thought that Canada, a land that prides itself on freedom, diversity, and human rights, would treat us like workers in the 18th century. That's brutal. That's really sad. And I mean, gives you insight into you. Because I think in a lot of ways it's this unseen Mm -hmm. Well, and it's also the story, it's like... You know, a lot of this podcast is about the story that we've told ourselves as Canadians. Yeah. And it's also the story that we tell to the world, right? Mm -hmm. So if you read this article, and we will link to this article, you see when he's talking about Canada, what what he thought Canada would be for him. And what it actually was, was a a huge shock to his system. But, you know, I try to keep the hope that there are more Donald Moores out there and that we can be more mindful and active and organize. I think of what Zanena Akande, a former NDP minister, said of him and how it still applies today. Donald was right in thinking that we deserve citizenship because the country could profit from our being here. And our children and their children would build Canada into something it never quite was without us. The Secret Life of Canada is recorded in Toronto on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, Wendat, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit. It's written and hosted by me, Leah Simone Bowen. And me, Phelan Johnson. And produced by Katie Jensen. Our script editor is Yvette Nolan. Research assistance is provided by John Weir. The folks from CBC Archives and the CBC Image Research Library. Our digital producer is Fabiola Carletti. The senior producer of CBC Podcasts is Tanya Springer. And the executive producer is R.F. Narani. Special thank you to all the people who wrote in to us to tell us about about their immigration experiences. Thank you so much. Come hang out with us in our Facebook group. You can chat with us about the episode or check out other cool history-related posts and tell us what you think. We're also on Instagram and Twitter at Secret Life of CAD. If there's a story you want to hear in an episode or a piece of history you want to tell us about, email us at secretlifeofcanada at cbc.ca. If you liked what you heard, or even if you didn't, please write us a review on iTunes. It really helps other people find us. That's right, and... For an upcoming episode, we want to hear from you about your grandmothers. We're going to do a shout out to the grandmas. And so if you have a woman in your life who did amazing things in history or just cared for you and you love her, send us a voice memo about your grandmother to secretlifeofcanada at cbc.ca. Thanks for exploring Canada's hidden history with us. And remember, pass it on. Pass it on.
If you like this podcast, check out Uncover the Village. For years, gay men were disappearing from Toronto's village. Police said they weren't connected, but they were. It turns out that that was only the beginning of the story. Subscribe to Uncover the Village wherever you get your podcasts. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.